You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. A grisly, raw-boned man, stoop-shouldered, loose and leathery. His body was shrunk and shriveled, dark skin, dark hair, looking woe-struck. His whole body worked slowly, creakingly, as if wanted oiling. He was not a pretty man, nor an ugly one by any means, but a homely one. I doubt I need to tell you who I'm talking about here. reading from one of the earliest and most controversial examinations of Abraham Lincoln's life. It's 1883, and you are treated to a rich sight. You enter a two-story home in a Midwestern city, surrounded by a white picket fence. You can enter to see walls full of pictures, furniture, clothing, trinkets, badges, autograph letters, pins, medals, envelopes, all celebrating one man. For some, it was the greatest collection of memorabilia of any man in the world. For others, it was a junk shop. This was Lincoln's home, which he departed in 1861 to become the 16th President of the United States. He rented it out, as the Lincoln family expected to be back in four or eight years. It would be rented out for 30 more years, as it would turn out. Some of the tenants did not take care of it. For a while, it had been used as a dentist's office. But now, it was focused on the man who used to own it. The wallpaper was barely visible because of the dense collection of photographs, flags, plaster busts, books. The largest collector of Lincoln memorabilia at the time had rented the house. And he used it as a great museum to celebrate the man, and at least for a time, free to the public. Some items were real. Lincoln's chair, the heavy cast iron stove that Mary loved, the cradle that the three youngest Lincoln boys had used. Other things were questionable. Was that really Lincoln's old splintered rail? What about that neck yoke? You know, the bar that you would attach to a rope around a horse's reins in a carriage. Suits, they seemed in excellent condition. Had they been left behind all these years? Yet there was an awful lot of real stuff, too. Lincoln Dagger types and Ambrotypes, the photographic methods that would have been used in his time. 83,000 visitors had graced this house by 1893. But Lincoln's son, Robert, had no use for the man who was his tenant or what he called his traps. He never liked what he saw as the blatant commercialization of his father. And he didn't like how... Osborne Olroyd, the curator and renter of the house, sometimes acted as he was the spokesperson for the family. And what about rumors that there was a picture of John Wilkes Booth there? Robert never really desired to go and check it out for himself. 
Old Royd stopped paying rent, too. And though Old Royd would always dispute it, word got back to Robert that he was charging 25 cents admission for entry to the house and even selling small pieces of the house. Robert sold the house to the state of Illinois and then had Old Royd kicked out. Old Royd took his collection and moved to the Peterson House in Washington, D.C., across from Ford's Theater, the house where Lincoln had died. Didn't take long for Lincoln to become an image for people to think less of him as that president who wasn't really all that popular during his time and barely won the nomination of his party with lots of opposition after four years in office, who nearly lost re-election in the general election to the general that he had appointed and then fired, George McClellan. Carried New York just by 1% in that election. And Pennsylvania by 3%, lost New Jersey and Maryland, and this after the Union had some big victories. A working politician, Lincoln was, in the game, always, but not in absolute control of all events. He was opposed by those both more radical than he and those more conservative than he in Washington. That president who couldn't get much done legislatively. That was forgotten in the Lincoln martyrdom as the funeral train went around the country and took Lincoln back home to Springfield. All that was remembered is the victor of the Civil War. There were attempts immediately to write remembrances of him, and it was less than a year before his image started appearing on medicine oil jars and even on the logo of a life insurance company. There were no movies yet, not even Nickelodeons, but certainly there were immediate thoughts of presenting to the American people the whole story of Lincoln in the technology of that time, a lofty, Morocco-bound tome. But one of the first people who sought to do this was an interesting person because he was someone who knew Lincoln closely. Or at least you'd think he did as much as anyone could know. It was his law partner in Springfield, William Herndon. About 10 years younger than Abraham, many in the Illinois legal community were surprised when Lincoln took on this novice as his partner. He was, as Herndon said, the runt of the firm. Lincoln was the hoss. He encouraged Herndon to get involved in politics, to start clubs supporting Whig and then Republican candidates, which Herndon did became a radical Republican. But when Lincoln was assassinated, Herndon decided, well, he knew Lincoln a lot from his law practice, but he wanted to know more about the late president. Like, where did he grow up? He wasn't originally from Springfield. It's not that much was known. There were a lot of memorials, too. Obviously, a lot of determination that Lincoln was some kind of an American saint. So Herndon figured... He would interview everyone he could to get the real picture of Lincoln, the real man, the real story. Sacred lies, he said, will not protect us. His effort would lead him to talk to 250 people in Illinois and Indiana and continue correspondence with those people. He sat down with David Davis, great friend. In that interview, Davis said, he was of a peculiar nature. The idea that Lincoln talked to any man about his religion is absurd to me. He's the most reticent man I ever saw or expected to see. He was, David Davis said, and this is one of his good friends, a secret man. 
He would listen to you say anything, but it was hard to get anything out of him. Mary Lincoln even sat down with William Herndon, too, at least in the beginning of his project, and said he was the most caring man in the world. He was a true friend in addition to husband. He also interviewed former roommate and bodyguard Joshua Speed, who saluted his great memory. Lincoln referred to his memory as a piece of metal. Once something was scratched there, it was hard to get it off. Others talked about more personal items. A woman named Ann Rutledge, he may have loved, who died before he was married, and Mary Owens, who he might have offered marriage to. As he assembled the papers, Herndon conducted a few lectures about how it was going. In these lectures, Herndon decided not to hold back. He revealed it all, even those things about Rutledge and Owens. He also said things about Lincoln's personality. Lincoln was, Herndon said, exceedingly ambitious. He had agreed for office. He also had a strong set of right and wrong. But sometimes he told people what they wanted to hear. For this, he was widely criticized. This is just two years after Lincoln's death. A Chicago friend of Lincoln said Herndon did injury and injustice to Lincoln. Mary was furious, and her pastor, Reverend James Smith, compared Herndon to John Wilkes Booth. Under fire, Herndon stopped these lectures. He dropped his law practice, too, and started to live on a farm. But he couldn't stop asking questions about the man who had been his law partner. He kept assembling notes and papers, and in 1872, Herndon needed cash. His farm was heading towards ruin. Another friend of Lincoln's, Washington lawyer Ward Lamon, who had helped run his Senate campaign, visited Herndon. When he saw the papers, he said, this is wonderful. I would like to buy these. No, Herndon said, I'd rather cut off a foot than part with this research. Herndon was very clear throughout his life he wasn't doing this for the money. But Herndon owed money on his farm equipment, and he wasn't seeing a lot of income from his farm. So he did sell for $4,000 his papers to Ward Lamon. Never telling him that he had copies of it all. Lyman got a ghostwriter, took something from the papers and some things from other sources, some that may have just been made up. And seven years after Lincoln's death, he published his Lincoln biography. He talked a bit about the childhood, and this is the first details that came out about Lincoln's childhood. This is where the public found out, for instance, that Lincoln did not get along well with his father. But Lyman also said that he was a cold politician and only pretended to care about black people. He'd use anybody and praise anybody. His engagement to Mary Todd was one of the worst misfortunes of his life. Now it wasn't Herndon, but Lamon that was the one that was roundly criticized in the press. David Davis said this book was written by an enemy. Mary Lincoln accused Lamon of enriching himself. Robert Lincoln said that he acted like a scoundrel. And later, when Lamon applied for a job with the Arthur administration, Robert Lincoln wrote a letter directly to Chet Arthur using his influence to block Lamon's nomination. 
Even though Lyman included Herndon's name in his intro and referenced that he used the papers of William Herndon, Herndon didn't want this negative publicity now anymore. He backed off the biography and made it clear to the press that he had nothing to do with the writing of it. He said a better biography was coming, hinting that he still had papers. But in 1873, Herndon stirred up his own controversy when he said in a lecture that Lincoln had no religion. He died, he said, an unbeliever. This was too much for the Lincoln critics. Herndon was the Judas of Springfield now. Herndon said he only did it because a minister was doing his own lectures claiming that Lincoln was a great Christian hero. He wanted to set the record straight that Lincoln was a real man and not a false hero. He really didn't attend church that much or talk about religion with many people. Even in these shocking lectures and books that stirred up a hornet's nest, there was certainly some truth. Even his son Robert said that his father had very little interest in church matters. A third friend, Joshua Speed, waited till 1880, then two years before his death, began lectures about Lincoln and published a book of personal remembrances. Since Speed was a buddy, this was mostly Speed's own remembrances. It was fairly complimentary, and it avoided controversy. Twenty years after Lincoln's death, a number of biographies and books had been written by friends, but also by people who didn't know Lincoln that very well, who were just historians. So, another group of friends sought out to write an official biography. And this was John Nicolay and John Hay. They wrote their book, Serialized in Century Magazine. Now this was an official biography, and the Lincoln folks liked it. When it was later published as a book in the 1890s, Robert Lincoln's approval was a seal on the first page. But these articles that appeared in the Century in 86 gave Herndon new energy for his project. He really wanted to get it published now. He now had a young partner, Jesse Wyke, a pension bureau employee who had a hobby of being a Lincoln collector. For three years, the two of them turned the papers into a complete whole manuscript, and Wyke went on to Kentucky to do more interviews. When they saw Hay and Nicolay's book, they felt they had an opening here. See, Hay and Nicolay's book was endorsed by the family, sure, it was official, sure, it was boring, and it didn't reflect the real man. It was Herndon felt too official to be popular. In August 1887, side-by-side -side writing in a sweltering hot room above an Indiana bakery where Wyke lived. They produced a manuscript. Belford Clock Publishers in New York agreed to publish their book. Herndon died without ever making any money from the royalties. The royalties simply went the money that he owed Wyke. The Herndon biography is an interesting read, and if you want it, it's on the internet at archive.org. It's told in a narrative form from all those oral memories of people. It kind of keeps it going. One story Herndon tells attesting to Lincoln's honesty is that a widow who owned valuable land contracted Lincoln to ascertain if liens attached to her property were just or not. Lincoln, to settle the matter, surveyed the land himself. The result proved that actually an error had been made in the past that the widow wasn't aware of. A former owner had sold the land at a certain price per acre, but actually made a mistake and gave more land than what he received payment from the widow's family for. 
So Lincoln said, according to Herndon's book, you've got to pay the heirs of that estate what is owed. The client objected, I didn't hire you to cost me more money. But Lincoln said she had to make the payment or he and Herndon would drop the case. Some stories in Herndon's book were more pedestrian. He never complained of the food or bed at lodging, some said. If others grumbled about the dingy bill of fare that greeted us at many dingy taverns, Lincoln said nothing. Once, when Lincoln was riding circuit, he was substituting as a judge. A father was suing a merchant for selling his minor son a suit of $28 without the father's permission. The question of law was whether or not a suit of $28 was necessary, the kind of thing that a son could be expected reasonably to go to a store and buy, or was it an extravagance that the store kind of pushed on the son without the father's permission. In this case, the merchant got the wrong judge. Judge Lincoln ruled for the father and against the merchant who sold the suit to the son, saying he, Lincoln, had rarely in his life wore a suit of clothing that was worth $28. Lawyers laughed when they heard that case, as they knew he was not lying. He was not fastidious in his dress. His hat was brown and faded. His coat and vest hung loosely on his large frame, and his trousers were invariably too short. Many lawyers made fun of the umbrella with the faded A. Lincoln on it that he carried with him through the circuit. So you got a picture of the real man in this biography that was not common in biographies in the time. Indeed, something happened between those first lectures and the 20 years now. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Laman's book caused such a sensation that her the knew what to avoid now. Everything had to be true, or at least something a person told them, or something Herndon remembered from his own encounters. He believed that there were necessary truths that must be confronted, even if they touched on private matters. Even in this new biography, some of the reporting on Mary Todd Lincoln and other aspects of Lincoln himself were viewed as malicious. For a long time, historians would not use this Herndon book. It was just a collection of what people said hearsay you know, about Lincoln. Now it is seen as a major Lincoln resource, and the change really occurred in the 1970s and 1980s. Mary Todd Lincoln's biographer, Jean Baker, remarked in 1983 
that Herndon had become every Lincoln scholar's reserve army, available to make a point when he agrees with whatever conclusion we wish to establish. But with Herndon's book having been so often discredited, it's easily dismissed when a historian disagrees with it. Still, in even collecting what people in the 1860s and 1870s and 1880s were saying about Lincoln, that was a valuable service as it turned out. Just like Mr. Oldroyd, who was seen as a bit of a huckster and maybe a conman in his life, is now seen as a great collector, and without his collection, we wouldn't have so much memorabilia about Lincoln. The questions that William Herndon asked in his biography are relevant today. Do we report only on what the family of a historical figure wants us to? Do we report the legend only? Do we always keep it positive, rosy? Or do we talk about the man? Do we talk about the politician, the schemer, or the saint? What is Lincoln the real man versus Lincoln the icon? And to this I add one more question. Do we, with all this talking about Lincoln, talk about Lincoln too much and deny ourselves talking about other things. Kevin Hagler writes on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site. Bruce, any thoughts on this film? This is the Daniel Day-Lewis Lincoln film. My first reaction is, there is so much history documentaries, books, lectures, courses. Did I mention books on the 16th president? Yet there is so much more in American history. And yes, to some degree it has to be. He was president when the country was at arms with each other, and the capital of the United States was potentially threatened, and he had lots of factions to deal with, and he had many political successes, particularly in the last year of his first term. He was an enormously good politician, a great communicator, and in the end, as effective as anyone could be. I mean, you could criticize some actions, but it's hard to say Edwin Bates or William Seward would have fared better. But having said that, I do think Lincoln is the son of of American history, so bright that it blinds us to other aspects. Then when I have these thoughts, I calm down a bit. Each new generation has to be reintroduced in their own way, so I suppose you do need a big screen appearance. But I bring those stories up about Herndon and others to know that it's never stopped. There was no wait for Lincoln memorials and examinations of his life, and it continues today. Now, why is Lincoln such a subject in American history? Because the Civil War is such a subject in American history. But even on the Civil War, I think you're dealing with such a complex series of events that the story of one scrappy Western president arriving by train in the middle of the night, patching a divided cabinet together and balancing D.C. politicals with visits to the telegraph office, prodding his generals with his knowledge of military affairs, uncanny for a country lawyer and a one-term congressman, going through the list of Union Army generals until he found his Grant, who skillfully guided the Emancipation Proclamation through rough political waters. I think that's a compelling narrative, and it's truthful, but simplifying some of the complexities. So I think there's just some other aspects of that time, the Civil War, that also should be known, read about, and discussed more, starting with, you know, there was a legislative branch as well during the Civil War. Benjamin Wade, Thaddeus Stevens, the helpful Speaker of the House, Galusha Grow, that Congress made the war effort possible and took an active role in the effort. Now, sometimes they quarreled with Lincoln as well. They also managed at the same time to start a transcontinental railroad and pass the Homestead Act. The important role of the border states, 
the Unionists in Kentucky, Eastern Tennessee, Missouri, and Maryland, who kept their states from going Confederate. Men like James Crittenden, who organized Kentucky's reaction to the outbreak of war and the first secessions in states, who helped to keep the state neutral. The state that could have been a border state, perhaps, but joined the Confederacy. The Virginia Convention. The first one in February 1861 and the second one in May. That met and at first voted down secession. Then the second that met after Fort Sumner and after Simon Cameron. Lincoln's Secretary of War demanded perhaps an ill-advised quota of 4,000 men from the state of Virginia, precipitating another convention, which overwhelmingly voted to secede. Furnishing the Confederacy with its best state, its capital, and of course its best general. Now it's not clear that anyone could have held Virginia, but losing it could have been seen as kind of a foreign policy defeat for the early Abraham Lincoln administration, and it's just simply not examined enough in, in you know common history. Of course, now, what many of those people voting against secession in Virginia wanted, what the uh, committee that was formed in Virginia to reach out to the federal government wanted, would be to keep slavery a lot longer, and to keep slavery in the territories as long as it was in, in the southern portion of the United States. And that was probably something that no president, particularly a Republican elected in 1860, was going to go along with. Another aspect that doesn't get discussed a lot is how important were the efforts of governors. You know, Lincoln is in control of the federal government. The federal government can't even control the entire territory of the United States at this point. It's still small. You have a Union Army, obviously, but the Union Army is located in certain theaters of war. But nothing would be done without the governors. So we need to look at the role of Edwin Morgan of New York, Andrew Curtin of Pennsylvania, Oliver Morton of Indiana, who kept his state sometimes under martial law in order to keep it in the Union, David Todd of Ohio, a Democrat who battled with other Democrats supporting the war efforts. They were essential in mobilizing the troops needed to fight. In an important conference after the Battle of Antietam, the governors supported Lincoln and gave him cover for the Emancipation Proclamation to be issued. But you know... There probably won't be an Oliver Morton the movie, although I think it actually would make a good one. Lincoln called him a ruthless man. Who else should we look at? Henry Halleck, Winfield Scott. These were generals that Lincoln relied on for that magic, you know, military knowledge that's so often talked about that he had. He relied on their advice. David Farragut, the naval leader who was able to uh, win the battles of Mobile and New Orleans. Very important to the Union effort. Not always discussed. The Lincolnosity of our history discussion in America doesn't just eclipse other people in the Civil War. It also eclipses other folks who were president, particularly the period between Lincoln Grant and McKinley and Roosevelt. You've got Hayes, Garfield, Arthur Cleveland, and Harrison. I talk about them quite a bit, and I certainly understand that these presidents did not face a war in their time for the most part. The politics of all these presidents' times were pretty intense. The Reconstruction period lasted longer than the Civil War. It was something that was formative, probably just as formative as a civil war was to what America would be like. And it gets less attention because no guns were fired, even though plenty of guns were fired. Not anti-Lincoln. It would be foolish to be so. Always recommend you to read Team of Rival. I've read several books, um, a great book on Lincoln's re-election campaign, on his experience in the War Telegraph Office. I've read some of the Sandberg books. 
it's very hard to second guess most of his decisions. You know, I and I have looked at the presidency and examined some of the things and could you do better? You know, it did take him an awful long time to win the war, but it, when you start asking the question, who would have done better? I, it's hard to come up with an answer for that. No, I think basically as a president who was elected at the time that the union was in crisis, was able to keep the border states placated, but didn't do so so much that it stopped him from issuing the Emancipation Proclamation that angered people in these states. I mean, so uh, the basic elements there, you had a president who made a significant policy change in the United States. In 1912, you might have gathered around a statue dedication ceremony around a certain state capital. And, well, you know dedication ceremonies. Maybe you would have dozed off. But now you wouldn't, because you would hear the voice of William Jennings Bryan. Nobody, nobody would doze through that. Bryan, Nebraska's most famous presidential contender, was the perfect oratorical compliment to the very modern evocative statue of Daniel Chester French the standing Lincoln. Well, I hope my history can beat up your politics listeners or people who would be good at the old state capitals game. And you know that the capital of Nebraska is Lincoln. This bronze statue on a granite pedestal is the capital celebration of the president that they used to develop their name. They developed a statue, half from state funds, half from private. It took 10 years to build. What's very different about this statue is that it does not show Lincoln as a talented politician or even as a brave commander-in-chief. It shows him looking downward, hands folded, solemn, as if he is standing over a grave. French stated that he purposely tried to represent Lincoln bearing the burdens and perplexities of the problems of the Great War. This was practice. He would go on to make the Lincoln Memorial. Lincoln, Nebraska, its capital, rises out of the surrounding area, 15 stories, 400 feet, the third tallest building in Nebraska, built in the early 30s. It is one of four skyscraper-style capitals. It also includes Tallahassee, Florida, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and the capital of North Dakota at, come on, you state capital buffs, yes, Bismarck. Once considered to be desert, Lincoln today was founded as the village of Lancaster, in 1859 by a group of prospectors hoping to build a salt industry from the salt basin of what is now called Salt Creek. The 1850s was a boom time in Nebraska, with lots of money coming in from east as real estate speculation and railroad building was going on. Much of the area's economy turned from the salt mining to agriculture. So why did Nebraska, so early on, 1867, just two years after the president's death, as they became a state, why did they rename their capital to honor the 16th president? Did they get caught up in Lincoln hysteria? Well, we'll go to a listener question from a Nebraskan. Dave Firstenow writes on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site, I'm going to suggest that you put together a show on Abraham Lincoln. I ask this as a citizen of Lincoln, Nebraska, a town named after Abe. But if you look into it, you'll discover it wasn't because we Nebraskans liked him. It was actually because we hated him. See, when they were fighting to move the state capital from Omaha to the village of Lancaster, the Omaha faction tossed in a poison pill as a Hail Mary effort to scuttle the plan. 
They essentially said if we move the capital, you had to rename your city Lincoln. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. I didn't use it as an intro, but those who still remember playing records or still play records today will know what I mean when I say it was kind of the side B intro. And it's true, not all Cornhuskers loved Lincoln, although the state did vote Republican for the next seven elections. But there was a fight between people north of the Platte River and south of the Platte River. The people south wanted the capital there, where Lincoln is now, where the village of Lancaster was then. Republicans in the state were working with South Platte Democrats together in a coalition. You give us something, we'll give you something. They would side with the Democrats on moving the capital to South Platte. So, yeah, the Republicans and the South Platte Democrats against the Democrats in Omaha. And it was well known that one of the South Platte Democrats was someone who literally had said Lincoln was Satan. And so when the vote came up to move the state capital from what had been the territorial capital of Omaha to Lancaster, one of the Omaha people said, well, if you want to do that, we're going to attach something that says you have to name the capital Lincoln. Instead of balking at the suggestion, this senator, even though he was a Confederate sympathizer and hated Lincoln, seconded the motion, and the capital now renamed Lincoln was moved to his home area with the name change. Those guys should have known better. Personal benefit trumps ideology anytime. Want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics. If you do like the program, please tell someone about it. Thanks for listening. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.